Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. Yes, this is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. Ariana. And we have two films we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we'll be talking about Rebecca Hall's new psychological horror thriller drama, uh, Resurrection, as well as Scott Derrickson and Ethan Hawke's latest collaboration, The Black Phone. Uh we just saw Nope yesterday. Yes. And even though it's not one of our official reviews, I do want to say you need to see this movie. Oh, yeah. This is like best of the year contender without a doubt. Yes. It was nostalgic at the same time while bringing you something completely new. Yeah, I would say it has the feel of like a classic kind of Spielbergian adventure movie, but there's also some pretty rough horror in it. Mm-hmm. And it's a movie where. I had, even up until, like, the very end of the movie, I wasn't sure what was happening, where it was going. They kept giving you enough information to keep you hooked and was completely satisfied with how the movie ended. Yeah. So, yes, we're giving it big, big thumbs up on, nope, go see that movie as soon as you can. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will be talking about Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone. Previously, Scott Derrickson has directed movies uh, like Blumhouse's Sinister and the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Doctor Strange. He's now kind of returning to his horror roots with The Black Phone. Uh, This is a film about a community in small-town America in the late 1970s being plagued by a child snatcher uh, nicknamed The Grabber by the local authorities. Uh, As... More children are abducted, tensions around the town increases, and we follow siblings uh, Finney and Gwen Blake who live in the area. Eventually, Finn is taken by the grabber, and it's up to Gwen with her strange clairvoyant abilities to help lead authorities to him in time and rescue her brother before he becomes another victim. Uh, So, Ariana, uh, you saw the black phone with me. What were your feelings about the movie just in general? It was not good. Mm-hmm. It was long. It didn't know what tone it wanted to be. There was like miscasting, in my humble opinion. And um, I really didn't know at the end of the day, like, what was the story supposed to be besides a creepy dude like kidnapping like thematically what was the point yes and um there also just didn't seem to be like a pattern the pattern that we were seeing was just mostly like it was it was boys being taken like not girls so you're going specifically about what the grabbers like his methodology Yeah, yeah and so there was like implication that maybe there had been girls before in the missing posters but not really sure and then I mean, the only trailers that I saw about it was Ethan Hawke talking about how he was unsure about making this movie, but then was like, oh, I wanted to make this movie because I found it interesting. And the child actors were... We'll get get into the specifics of that because I definitely want to talk about the child actors. Yeah, Uh, yeah, my feelings very similar to yours. 
it felt very much like what I've come to expect a Blumhouse movie to feel like, which is yeah. tonally inconsistent on the cheaper side, but not like low budget enough that there's a charm to it. Yeah. It's like there's just enough money so that it just is mediocre. It just feels like it was basically a dollar store version of It. Yeah, it is really riding off of the sort of vibes and sentiments around It. Uh, and it's very kind of, Stephen King. I mean, it was, yes. it was based on a short story written by a son, yeah. uh, Joe Hill. And I've never read any of Joe Hill's work, but now I'm starting to suspect he just kind of is very much like his father based on the adaptations I've seen of his work. Um, it's, yeah, it, I, it's a movie where, you know, they try to have you know, moments of humor, like any yeah. tense movie does. But it doesn't land well, and you no. get confused because where those moments are placed kind of undercuts the tension, I, in my opinion. And so you just end up with a very muddled movie that never really feels like it comes together. Like it, it's, it's one of those experiences where it's a movie that keeps feeling like it's starting. Yeah, it feels like And you're like, like when are we getting to the point? It's like a lifetime film that managed to get Ethan Hawke to play a character. Yeah. That it, he barely, he doesn't have any face time and you just know it's Ethan Hawke because of his voice. You don't really see his face much. Uh, if you've seen the trailers, then it's no spoiler. The title of the film, The Black Phone, uh, refers to an old landline rotary phone that is in the basement where uh, Finn is being held, Finn Blake, by the grabber. And he, the ghosts of previous victims are able to communicate with him through the phone. Yeah. My my read was that, oh, he has inherited some of his mother's abilities. There's a, a backstory that we, we don't get much on. And please, God, do not turn this into, like, The Conjuring, where then we're going to get a prequel about their mom or something. Uh, she had clairvoyant abilities, which the daughter clearly has inherited. And my read was that he had two, and it was... The phone was kind of a conduit for him. The way some people who do like um, seances or summonings, they they need like an object or something to yeah, channel it through. It just, it's not clear though. No, it's not it, clear. And it's not good. And then it's also like this confusing thing because the dad co- is abusive. Played by the Jeremy dad, Davies, if you've seen Lost. And I just... I don't know what his acting so, yeah, let's is talk supposed about to be. The performances, like, starting with Jeremy Davies. He's just not good. Yeah, it's he's playing a sort of alcoholic, traumatized father who has a lot of unprocessed emotions around his wife's death and particularly her abilities. Do they ever really make it clear how she died? She killed herself. Okay, yeah. And so I guess the idea is that she couldn't stop hearing these spirits. Well, like, and it drove her mad. That, like, basically it, they drove her to do this because she kept trying to help all the time. And there's also this weird thing about, like, in the house that they're supposed to be as quiet as possible within their own home. And um, it's not explained why, if it's the dad is just like that. There's also this implication that they have to take care of their dad because he's going to get drunk at night. Does he have a job? He does. He wears like blue collar kind of industrial wear. So So I assume he works like at a factory. Yeah, but it's not like we don't know if he works nights or days. I got the vibe it was nights because of the quiet around the house. Like it was taking that to like an extreme degree. Yeah, but it's also like... So it's supposed to be in the 1970s, and he has long hair and a beard. He's very unkempt. So he doesn't really, like, 
look the part of what I could his dad. I could see. No, like we know this actor. He just was not going to change his appearance. I mean, yeah, that's the way Jeremy Davies just looks. So, I mean, it makes sense to me, like, if he'd been working wherever he does for a really long time, and then, you know, his wife kills himself, they're kind of like not on him yeah it's about this that weird stuff. thing but we but don't get enough also, understanding of him he looks a little too pristine with the spite with the long beard and, yeah, he, and yeah, hair. yeah 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 and it's also like this just like he's just like oh it's kids don't oh. can you slurp a well, little louder there finny boy and it's <laughs> very he feels very much like a badly written stephen king character the way he'll write adults sometimes yes because it, it you know, Stephen King, very heavy-handedly in his work, is always, you know, oh, sometimes adults are the worst monsters. But that's a thing he's done so often. And it's a little disappointing to me that Joe Hill has kind of taken on that trope because he doesn't do it any better than his dad did. Uh, it's very hackneyed and cliche the way it's done. Yeah, and we don't know because I've not read the short story. I don't know. I mean, I'm the movie made me interested in reading it just to go... Is it very different? Is it better? I mean, it could be. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what about the child performances? We have um, actors Mason Thames as uh, Finney and Madeline McGraw as Gwen. They're both fairly new. I know McGraw has had like some minor roles and some things, but nothing the, too the big. The boy playing Finney is just blank. He's barely expressive. Yeah. In, in moments where he needed to be a little more expressive. And so it's also like this weird thing that they're trying to replicate like 1970s hair, but his hair seems a little bit too stylized, which is a nitpicky thing on my part. Yeah, um, I, I it's did like have... they blow dried his hair to make that like unnatural middle part. It's the way like Stranger Things will present 80s hair and fashion in a way that just feels like, well, yeah, in movies, that's what it looked like. But in real life, you never really saw people that way unless they were, like, rich or they lived in a certain area of the country. Yeah. And the one thing about the movie is that we aren't really sure geographically where this is happening. No. I know it was filmed in North Carolina, but for some reason, I kept thinking Pacific Northwest. Um, and then, like, the the sister was just... She's trying. Pre- yeah, she's trying. She's a little too precocious. I mean, like, she calls her brother kid at some point. And she is the younger sibling. She's <laughs> the younger sibling. Um, she uses a lot of profanity, which I think the movie intends to be comedy, but just reads as weird because it's such, like, calling, you know, kids a little older than her, like, motherfucking cocksuckers, like... It just reads as why well, no is it supposed balance. to be like the psychic or like she's hearing ghosts talk or something? It's not balanced. Yeah, I don't understand the, between her brother who barely cur- or doesn't curse at all yeah. from what I recall in the movie, and um, Finney just comes off as this like they're making him off like this weak character. He can't stand up for himself, so his younger sister stands up for him, and he has another friend that does. But there's no exposition. I don't know what this kid likes. I, yeah, I don't really just... know much about Finn. He seems to be good at math because one of the kids asks him for help. He doesn't like confrontation. And he always carrying around a little like a like a little rocket thing that he's always. Oh, it's like a pen with a light or something that, that looks he's like always a rocket. Fidgeting with. But like they're he's so broadly drawn, and even over the experience that he goes through. 
you feel like, okay, we're really going to get to know this character. Maybe they'll use some flashbacks. Maybe there'll be some really clever, you know, filmmaking techniques to communicate things about him. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, I got to the end of the movie and I don't feel that I knew him better than I did when the movie started. I know his sister very well. Like she almost felt like she was supposed to be the main character at certain points. Yeah, and it just didn't, like, because of the fact that it just felt so all over the place, I didn't know who I was supposed to focus for or cheer on. And I think they were trying to make it like an equal setting, but Finney was boring at the end of the day to deal with. Like, he... Like he, he was not a compelling. Protagonist. Yeah, he doesn't have any motivations. He's just he's supposed. Well, I mean, to be, his motivation is get out of the basement. He's he's <laughs> essentially like this weird Mary Sue when you think about it. Yeah, because he's through his communication with the ghosts, he pulls off some things that you know are a bit incredulous. But I would let it go, you know, to a certain extent. But here, if it was a more interesting character, or there was just. There was just something there that feels like it's missing. Yeah. Um, now, Ethan Hawke has been like kind of one of the big selling points of the movie, and particularly this grabber character. He has a very stylized mask. Uh, people who are familiar with like movie history might recognize it as very similar to Lon Chaney's vampire character in London After Midnight, which is kind of an old classic uh, early horror film. So it's it's certainly one of those things where um, Derrickson is trying to, you know, be a film dude and, and yeah. reference some things. What did you think of Ethan Hawke's performance in the movie? He could have been replaced with someone else and it wouldn't have made a big difference. I, I Once again, we are exactly in agreement. It felt like such a waste of someone I know is like overflowing with talent and could have done really interesting things with this role is most of his performance is sitting in a chair in a dark kitchen Looking making animal noises every yeah. once in a while. And it's not even an interesting, like, physical performance. Like, you know what's really sad about... I started thinking that another movie did a better portrayal of, like, basically being kidnapped versus... And it's not a great movie. Split. Oh, yeah. It had a much more interesting antagonist. The protagonist was much more compelling. Like, the yeah, fact yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. split, like, when she gets kidnapped and she also knows that, you know, one of the characters might be sexually assaulted soon, she grabs the character and says, pee on yourself. And yeah, there's, like, survival stuff. There's survival yeah. stuff, and it just seems like with Black Phone, um, the the kink was basically the grabber just wants to beat up kids until they're a bloody pulp. Yeah, I never understood. And then once again, we're trying to talk about like how Finney's, what his goals and motivations are outside of this situation. Yeah. With the grabber, I never understood what he really wanted to do other than like slowly psychologically fuck with kids and then kill them. Like that's it. Which doesn't seem... I mean, yeah, I'm sure in real life that's a lot of serial killers' um, motivations. But in terms of this film that has a supernatural air to it, there just need to be something more. There also has to be like a pattern of the type of kid that he picks up. It's and whatever boy kids, is walking home alone. And the kids <laughs> that he picks up, it seems like they all differ in personality. There's one kid They don't that, even look the same. The, there's one kid that, for example, feels like he's 14 or 15 years old, so it seems a little bit way too old to be grabbed. Was that the at the beginning of the movie? 
No, we're talking about like one kid. Like, one of the ghosts he encounters. Yeah, one of the. Yeah, ghosts. some of them seem like you probably could have fought that guy off. He's not and, that big. And <laughs> like, like being like showing that this is like a tough kid that like had you know gotten into fights and stuff like that, or like had weapons on him, kind of thing, like a knife at the least, only to just be like, oh, he was like easily caught by this guy, and. It's kind of confusing because it was also just, again, the style was misplaced because at some points we don't see the ghost. Other times we do see the ghosts. It just felt like there was a lot of ideas but no consistency. How do you feel about um, the horror elements in the movie? So aside from the grabber, which is very much like kind of trying to be a more grounded type of horror, we have these ghosts communicating through the black phone. How did you feel about that element of the movie? I just felt that it was kind of disjointed. Because at some point, the grabber, um, after he takes Fenny, he's like, oh, can you hear the phone? The phone's ringing. I'm going to go check it out. And the ghost basically tells Fenny, no, he can hear the uh, the the fo- phone's ringing and he knows something's wrong. Like He knows that like we're down here haunting. So was it that the grabber also had some sort of like ability to detect the supernatural or it's just also he's going crazy kind of thing like and it there is an element to the movie that immediately reminded me of scott derrickson's sinister which i think is a far superior horror film to this uh sinister for those who aren't familiar with it also stars ethan hawk but makes much better use of him uh he's the protagonist in that film and he moves into a house where he discovers these old like super eight reels of home movies and they depict uh, murders yeah essentially that have happened um and the murders are all centered around a supernatural presence that has kind of like influenced different families over the years so throughout sinister you get these little short films that can exist without the context of the movie like you could watch one of the short films from sinister and it would just be a really creepy like silent horror experience yeah. but very effective they were the best part of that movie in my opinion the overarching uh plot of the movie i didn't really with bagul and all of that mm-hmm. was not that compelling to me but i really like those short films and derrickson tries to do a similar thing in the black phone with gwen's dreams she's constantly having dreams that are very like cryptic fragmented but always pointing her towards you know the final goal of stopping the grabber saving her brother i didn't find them scary at all no because it's just supposed to be like the leading or her talking to the ghosts that at so at the weird time they're trying to also do like this parallel that he's talking to one of the ghosts and the ghost that she happens to infiltrate through a dream is saying the same thing that he's telling her brother. And so it's like kind of syncing the two siblings up on this kind of astral plane. But it's just, it's also just kind of like weird because it doesn't feel as if like she's collecting her own set of clues. And it probably would have benefited her to at the least have someone to bounce against these ideas like yeah, she doesn't a really friend have that. who she talks to or maybe like a friend of his that wants to help her find him um the only people she talks to are like the cops the cops and her dad and that's basically it like she has a friend that she stays with like every friday night who's with, a non-character who's a non-character 
And we're just, it's also supposed to be like, there's also, there's supposed to be this underlining threat, uh, threat of her trying to use these dreams because her father has prohibited her from doing so. And she has like these crosses, a rosary where she's begging to God to let her have these dreams. So we don't have a moment that maybe the dad would be like, hey, God doesn't exist. Stop doing this. Or the dad catching her praying and telling her to stop at some point that that's not going to bring her brother back. Of maybe showing the dad in defeat of like allowing her to make noise in the house and she's afraid because she doesn't know like when he's going to explode. There's... The thing is, like, you don't feel the tension yeah. that you should. Because already in the back of your head, you're thinking, this kid's going to survive, and uh, she's going to figure it out. Like, you know it. Because, it's very predictable. Because, like, yes. also, like, and, like, in the element of horror, you do want to have a sense of, like, it, are they really going to survive? Like, Finny really doesn't get, like, any real bruises on him no like the he, because the ghosts keep warning him he avoids any real direct confrontation with the grabber until the very end of the movie yeah and so like there's never a moment where the grabber maybe goes downstairs and starts asking like why didn't you go upstairs yeah like, like he's not following the pattern all the other victims have so you would think the grabber might change up his technique but no he doesn't no he just keeps doing the same thing and there's also like that dumb thing about where he's being located at the end of the day Oh yeah, there's like uh, that. It's like almost done as a comedic side yeah. plot that then falls real flat. Um, I also I've never been a big fan of uh, the friendly ghost trope in movies. So like you'll have a supernatural film where maybe the direct antagonist is someone in the material world. In this instance, the grabber. So it's someone who can be physically defeated, and then the protagonist gets help from some sort of supernatural element. Where there's, you know, ghosts or somebody guiding them. I really don't like that. I feel like supernatural elements in horror, personally for me, work best when they're part of the threat. Or they're something that's almost like a force of nature. Or like... That has no... It doesn't care about the protagonist. It's just kind of following this almost pre-programmed loop of how it behaves. Yeah. And if the protagonist gets in the way, then the protagonist is dead. Yeah. Uh, And this... Like, what was their compulsion to help him other than it was, like, they just wanted revenge on the grabber? It was all just, like, for But they didn't revenge. even remember who they were. That was the thing is the ghosts, yeah. like, don't know their own names. It's, like, this weird thing. Like, some of them did, some of them didn't, and some of them were just kind of, like, it doesn't matter anymore what my name is. Or one ghost got upset because, like, he didn't want to hear his name and he's just, like, call me Paperboy. Uh, like, it's just, it was very muddled and an unsatisfying just, horror movie and it was uninteresting at the end of the day it didn't satisfy any itch that i would have like oh i got to see a different type and even a step- bunch of, just like it was just a bunch of white people with like two character or three characters of color sprinkled in we're just victims they were yeah. just victims <laughs> and then one cop uh <laughs> I, I, yeah i felt very inconsistent for me very unsatisfying and then even from an aesthetic point of view, it's supposed to be set in 1978, and I had a hard time pinning down, like, when this was, because some of the clothing felt like it was from the late 60s rather than the late 70s. Which is Some fine. of the references, like, they referenced the Partridge family, and hey, I'm no big expert on, you know, pop culture before I was born, necessarily. 
it felt like maybe in 1978 the Partridge family wouldn't have been as big a deal. I mean, I yeah, think it was it just yeah. Been fine if maybe like we're thinking about the terms of reruns. Yeah. But it's also just But like my thing is these movies are nostalgia bait. Like it's like Stranger Things, right? So if that's what you're going to be, then you at least have to get your period details right and make me feel like I I'm mean, in the I time period and it like it, it was, failed at that. I don't feel like it was nostalgia bait. It just felt like well, here's oh, the question: Why was this set when it was set? I don't know. It's just probably like this whole. Thing here's of, like, two reasons: not having phones on them to be able to track where he's going. It's the cell phone thing, and it's also yeah, there were a lot of child abductions in the '80s, and so it's set in this time period merely for plot convenience. Yeah, which is a weak reason. I mean, if you want to set something in a time period that's not the present, I was like, there needs to be a reason why it's then and not now, yeah. because. If it's just, oh, well, we wouldn't want them to have cell phones on them, that's not a good enough reason. That can be a reason, but we need to go further with that and come up with a reason why, you know, because they didn't even really play up like the satanic panic thing. Yeah, that it they could have was, played Yeah, out, it was know, really odd. It's also the fact that, like, they could... I, I don't remember what we watched recently that had um thing about, like, kids missing... But like it, there wasn't even like a moment of being like, oh well, so and so kid obviously wasn't grabbed by the grabber. They like ran away only for to figure out it was the grabber kind of thing. Like there was just it was ultimately like he was out there in the world grabbing these kids. It it was too straightforward. It was a little too straightforward, and it was like concentrated in this one community, and in this one high school or middle school i don't the know school. because it's like the first thing that we see is kind of like a kid like in a baseball thing and then you have like someone that looks like they're 14 or 15 getting yeah the age kid. thing was a little odd um but yeah i would say we're definitely not recommending the black phone unless no. they the marketing has compelled you to really want to see it badly Maybe it will be your thing, but for us, it was certainly no, it a disappointment. Felt, felt like an upper scale lifetime uh, movie, but with more men, with ghosts <laughs> and ghosts. Well, Resurrection is the latest film produced and starring uh, Rebecca Hall. It is about a woman named Margaret's carefully constructed life getting upended uh, when someone from her past reappears in her life, which forces her uh, to confront something that happened two decades ago that she has avoided this entire time. Uh, so, Ariana, just in general... How did you feel about Resurrection? Oof. I mean, that is a good way to, not in a, like, bad oof. The performances are spectacular. They're yeah. amazing performances. Yeah. And to be honest, if we were going to summarize this movie to someone, I would probably, if someone told me just the outline uh, and be like, this is what happened, I'd be like, ah, uh, yeah, sure, that's not a movie for me. But it is performed so well that I 
I'll be thinking about this movie for a long time. Oh yeah, I definitely. I think it's one of the best films of the year. Uh, the you were saying it's the performances that make the movie, uh, but not even that. It's the reveal that we get around midway through about what happened to Margaret. You're never gonna predict it. I oh, can't. No. I, it. I when I saw the trailer and from some of the things I heard, I thought, oh, is this kind of like a Me Too movie? Which I have no problem with, but it certainly seems like a trend to kind of, oh, let's make a movie about a woman who is sexually assaulted, not really add anything to the conversation about that, but just like, isn't like, a revenge. like isn't that bad? Or, yeah, or a revenge movie. And I'm just sort of like, it's, that's not interesting to me, though. Uh, I thought of uh, Rose Plays Julie, that uh, English film we saw last year yeah. about the young woman who was a uh, product of rape. Mm-hmm. and her reconnecting with her biological mother and then finding her biological father. And I felt like that did a really good job of presenting a revenge film about women in a way that you don't expect. Yeah, This did as well. Uh, the entire film is from Margaret's perspective, including, you know, the epilogue of the movie, which leaves a lot of questions on the table. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important that it's from her point of view, uh, not because I think everything in the film literally happens and we want to see how she reacts to it. It's because it's a movie about her her psyche. It's about what's happening to her mind right now. Yeah. And so we need to be in her mind to really experience that fully. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca Hall's performance. It was amazing. That was just... That's just it. It's just... It was so good. And typically when I see Rebecca Hall, like, I know she's going to give a good performance. I've not seen her yet in anything where I've just been like, ah, mediocre. Didn't give me anything. I'd, um, I'd say most of the films I've... She's not an actress I've necessarily sought out. She would just kind of end up in movies that I've watched. Like, I mean, you think Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah. That's a complete waste of her. That's <laughs> what it is. It's a complete waste but she, of her. I'm sure but she was she, able to buy a new house or something. Like, that's oh, great. Good for her. she's able to produce this film. Yeah, true. Yeah. And, like, and go do things that probably interest her. But it was also the fact that, like, even in that film, she fills in that role and you don't question that she's that person yeah, I, she's somebody that i've never felt phones in her performances yeah. in anything even like the silliest stuff yeah she's go- she's committed she's that character and she's gonna play it straight um she has a an almost eight minute single take monologue right around the midpoint of the movie it's part of what we mentioned earlier about the sort of reveal of what happened to her uh and it's just, it's not just her performance, but th- where and how they chose to set that scene. Oh, so good. And like the way they filmed it. And it's just encroaching on her face as the darker the story goes. And so all the lighting is focused on her face in the background. Just kind of fades. Yeah. into black. And you've realized she is telling her deepest and darkest secret. Like the, and the, more horrific than anything I've ever heard happen to anyone in real life. And <laughs> just then she's like, I've never told anyone else uh, about this in my entire life. You should feel privileged. And well, <laughs> the moment the, 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 breaks. I, yeah, the, what I loved, you're talking about that camera, because it's also creating tension by refusing to show us the other person's reaction. Until she's done talking, until yeah. Margaret's done. And so 
there's this beautiful that I was saying the tension there of not only are we hanging on to every word that Margaret says, we're also wondering in the back of our head, how is this person going to receive this? Because this person's just stopping by to go like, hey, hope you're doing okay, <laughs> and gets just this trauma unloaded onto them. Yeah, and it's also the fact that this character is someone who has, without intention, unloaded their own trauma onto mm-hmm. her. So There's like, a lot about workplace appropriateness in the movie, I think. Yeah, and it's I think it's supposed to be she is uh, the mentor towards this young woman who is uh, with Gwen. Gwen, yeah. who is with someone who is obviously being at the least emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm. And how And always off screen. I yeah, like I like that, that we screen. we never see so the other person. Margaret involved. is like the person that is helping her navigate not only through like her work, but her personal life. She is being everything that, for example, when people talk about inclusivity and you know women supporting women, she is supporting this person. But here's the, the thing. Um, in the film, we eventually come to learn that uh, this person out of Margaret's past, David, played by Tim Roth in an another incredible performance yeah um that david and her relationship is hinged on this sort of uh, almost like a bdsm thing where it's he's dominant she's submissive Mm -hmm. i think margaret's relationship with gwen is a parallel of that where roles are reversed where margaret is the master and gwen is the submissive the way she just brings all of her problems to margaret Mm -hmm. and margaret doesn't hesitate to go like, you know what, this is kind of a violation of professionalism for us to get this deep into your personal life. Or like, and maybe guide her towards a therapist, someone who's trained. It's like Margaret, I think, there's some satisfaction about being in this power role for her, based on what we know from her past. But I think it, in, in contradiction of what you're saying, Margaret thinks that she's healed enough to deal with it. She thinks that she is in a balanced situation where she can be this person that she wants to be. She deeply wants to be. But there are things about her life that are spiraling out of control. And we don't know if David is really there or not. Mm -hmm. That's the insane part of the film. Well, I mean, my read of it is David is in her head. That's, yeah. I think, David's and in her head. And it is also the fact that we have Abby, who is Margaret's uh, eight, uh, like soon-to-be 18-year-old daughter. She's about to go to college. That's about to go to college. And it is the consequences of the fact that like Abby will no longer be there. Abby is also giving signs that her, like, indicating that her mother has had episodes in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has, does not know what her mother has gone through. But... Like, Abby is very much a very interesting character, which I think she almost depicts perfectly the way that Gen Z, at the least from my understanding of what I've seen of them. Um, In the wild, handle... at the zoos, that <laughs> yeah. you've seen of Gen Z. Oh, of how to handle their parents. Because, like, I did love a, a point where Margaret is talking to her daughter, being like, you know I would do anything for you. I would, I would kill for you. And Abby's like, I 
You're saying that for yourself. Yeah, she's like, I don't want you to kill I anybody for me. I don't want you to do that for me. And she's like, and then... But I want to go back. That's David manifesting in Margaret. Because I think what the film ultimately is about is trauma that has not been dealt with and how it constantly comes up. And part of the way that trauma might manifest is that you in turn begin to become the person that victimized you in your other relationships because Margaret is obsessed with controlling Abby. She frames it around her own safety, but then think about David's arguments are framed around safety as well in the re- ways he compels Margaret to do these horrible well, things. I think it's uh, the way that I was reading with um, David is what I really love is like they, he, any of these abuses that he does do to her, it's, he refers to them as kindness. Yeah. He, this is an act of kindness. And then he congratulates her being like, didn't you feel good about doing that? Showing how far you could take it. And with Abby, it's never about how far you can take it. It's, I'm making sure my daughter never encounters David. But I think, and I think it's, you, it's that sense of control she wants so deeply. But I think you're misreading. Margaret isn't necessarily becoming David but she's becoming who David has shaped her into a paranoid person who lives in fear and terror. Yeah. So her behaviors with these people is she's not aware enough of her own trauma to understand that she's manifesting traits that were cultivated in her by this monster. Yeah. And she's just running on autopilot. So she's a character who believes that she's hyper aware of what's going on around her. But she is so blind to her life. Like, she is in her own head all the time. She isn't aware of, like, what she's doing to Abby, what she's doing to Peter, the man that is her lover in the movie, what she's doing to Gwen, her employee. Yeah. Because she's lost in this sort of, it's like a whirlpool that's pulling her down. And she thinks by behaving so intensely and being so um, stubborn with these people... Well, it's that also, she's going to, like, fix the problem. She, it's also the elements of different control that we've seen throughout her life. Um, Peter, who she has a sexual relationship with, is married. Mm-hmm. And she chose him because proximity, he works um, at her. She is his superior. He's married, so therefore he should be emotionally unavailable to her. It's a dominant, her, submissive relationship. Her daughter... Uh, when asked, who's the father? I don't know. I met men at bar. We had sex. Yeah, it's And very... it's basically like the indication that when she decided when she was going to have a child, she didn't involve anyone else. She lives her life in a way of solitude, even though she's not opening up to saying it. She lives her life in a position of dominance over everyone else in her life. Yeah. She is the boss. She's the mom. And then she's the literal boss at work. Those are the only two environments. She has no friends outside of any of this. And it's, I think the experiences she has under David have driven her to the point where she wants to no longer be even a hint of submissive to anyone else. So she only interacts with people in terms where she is in the position of superiority. Yeah, which is control. She has control. So therefore, if she is, has the upper hand, nobody can hurt her. Yes, and so that's why, like, she doesn't... 
really make a strong effort to go to the authorities about David. Like, she tries to explain it. but No, once, she, went, she, she goes to the authorities. But it's... I didn't get the sense she really wanted them to do anything about it. No, Seth. No, 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 no. No. No, 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 no. But it was a realistic depiction of how it is when you go to the authorities. I'm not saying that the her encounter with the authorities wasn't realistic. I'm saying that I think Margaret, deep down, when we look at her actions, remember, mm-hmm. we need, and when we look at these films, especially something so psychological, we need to differentiate between what they say and what they do. So Margaret mm-hmm. says certain things, but her desire is she wants to physically destroy David. Oh, yeah. But there's also a part of her that where the David that she's speaking to, who I think is a manifestation in yeah. her head is right to a point that she does derive some sort of satisfaction from submitting to him. Yeah. But it's not a healthy satisfaction. No. It's a destructive thing. It's for for part of her it's almost like because we talk about she's in this position of control in her life that there's a relief to it. The same way like in real life people will submit to like these relationships and the reason they might pick to be the submissive is they want to lose control to an extent or not think yeah. And I think the event that triggers all of this is important. Yeah. It's Abby, in the very opening of the film, tells her mom how she found a tooth in her wallet. And it's not Abby's tooth, and it's not her mom's tooth. And she's like, isn't that so weird? I just found this tooth. Yeah. Later, we see that uh, Margaret has bite marks on her that are scars left over from like 20 years ago. And she has cigarette burns Cigar- also. And there's... And we also see David is missing a tooth. So it's part of the film's, you know, conceit to make us think maybe David is real and he somehow got into their house, which is not what the movie is really about. That's, that yeah, would be too we simple. we don't know if that scene between them actually did happen, meaning like the daughter and... Like, I think it might have. Because, yeah. I mean, like, it's one of those things where, yeah, sometimes weird things show up where they shouldn't be. It's just a thing that happens. But it's that triggers Margaret. But I think it goes back to the fact that what you're saying, Abby's leaving. Mm-hmm. And this trauma had to do with Margaret in the role of a mother and her failures in her mind, even though they really weren't failures, what she perceives as her failing in her part of being a mother. Because her daughter is just going to be gone. Yeah. And, and so- I think it's also the knowledge that her daughter might, she might never see her daughter again under the guise of the way that she's used to because now her daughter is going to go to college maybe realize ooh, my mom's a little toxic i'm going to avoid talking to her kind of thing so it is coming into full light and so gwen is playing a role of a surrogate daughter to margaret parallel to abby yeah she's a younger woman but unlike abby who is wanting to find her own way as most people will right mm-hmm. you don't want to just go to your mom and go tell me what to do right Gwen is the kind of daughter Margaret wishes she had who is completely submissive to her. And like, let me explain these problems in my life. Please tell me what to do. Yeah. And so I think Margaret is getting satisfaction out of that relationship with Gwen because she's playing a much softer, I mean, extremely softer touch compared to David. But she's still getting to be the one that tells Gwen what to do in her life. And there's some satisfaction in that. Yeah, and there's also like this weird countdown of when Gwen is going to leave. Yeah, because she's like doing an internship or something. It was like a limited contract with the company. And so Abby's not providing her with that. 
But Abby is doing what children should naturally do, which is push back on their parents and do their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's a film that's like incredibly tied up in concepts of motherhood. I mean, yeah. I think that's the big overarching theme of the movie yeah. is mothers and when mothers feel like failures and guilt as a mother. Yeah. And how do you process that guilt? And particularly when you weren't real, you were like, I mean, she was a child when she's with David, essentially. Yeah. And like, there's. And it talks about her parents like, very it was briefly. So, yeah. I think it was so beautifully done when she explains the relationship of how it came to be with David. Yeah. On how she was like, at first, there's the beginning, there's a hint that she asked Peter after they had sex, have you ever drawn? Oh, I drew the other day. And it was like, she's kind of happy. Mm-hmm. She's happy at that moment. But then the reminders start coming up. Gwen is leaving. Are you going to do my referral letter? Yes, don't worry about it. It's going to be glowing. Mom, I'm 18. You're 18 in two weeks. She's These... holding on to that control as tight and as she can. And it's like the pushing. Um, her daughter like, go, does, like goes and does something that like an adult legally is only allowed to do. And ends up in the emergency room. Um, Ends up in the emergency room. There is like the sensation of like guilt because she didn't answer the text message. So she's assuming that maybe her daughter went to go drinking because she didn't answer the text message. And she doesn't answer the text message because she's having sex with Peter. Yeah. So this brings in her relationship with men. Peter eventually tells her he's in love with her. But the whole reason she was with him is because he was married. So it made him at a safe distance where she didn't have to worry about that. And like you were saying with Abby's father, it's clear Margaret does not want to be in a permanent relationship with a man. That is of yeah. no interest to her because of what happened with David. And they do such a great job where Margaret never sits Abby down and explains to her what happened. Yeah, Abby is completely blind to all of this. Like, there's never a moment of weeping and pleading, let me explain about my tragic past. Which I think it was very smart because Abby does put a firm barrier between her and her mom. But then who does Margaret tell the story to? She tells Gwen. The surrogate daughter. The person that it's inappropriate for her to tell the story to. Yes. When she should tell it to her daughter because the person who needs to understand Margaret is Abby. Not Gwen who's leaving the company in a few weeks. But that person is safe because... Mm, well, she'll be gone, and then if it goes badly, it doesn't... It won't matter, yeah, yeah. I'll never see her yes, again. Yes, exactly. And so it's it's there's just such intelligent writing in this movie, yeah. and particularly the way those relationships are written are so good. Even Peter, who in most movies would just be this sort of forgettable, unimportant character... Or a guy that does a little too much... Is nuanced and subtle. Like when he confesses that he loves her, there's never a moment where Margaret pauses and thinks, you know, love will fix this. In fact, she just starts to like hit him being like, I didn't ask for this. I like she's mad at him for intervening in her life. And how will is she's mad at her daughter for allowing a stranger and her daughter's like, but I'm not dumb. I know you two are having sex. And she's sort of like, he's still a fucking stranger. But like, she still underestimates Abby. Like in that yeah. scene, uh, we learn it's sort of Abby is an adult, but she still views Abby as a child. Yeah. And that is something that like, 
is really hard to go through because that like there's many a times that parents will view their you know their child as a child no matter what age they are but the acting was just so so good um and it was tense because i remember watching the film and a lot of times during a film like if i pick up my phone it's just to see what time it is but i do notice like when it's tense i do it to make a to break away from it and I tried not to do that with my phone yesterday, but it was so tense that yes. even you were remarking on it. You're like, is this- I was like, this is the most tense I felt watching the movie <laughs> in a long time. Um, Which Black Phone had none of that. No, yeah, Black Phone. I never felt. I my mind drifted so much watching Black Phone. Like this one, you just felt like Rebecca Hall was going to end up like breaking down at any moment. Like she gives what is literally a compelling performance, where you like you keep watching her. Um, would this movie be a Me Too movie? Because what happened is so beyond anything anybody's come forward with from Me Too. I mean, it is an atrocity that like, happens to her. I think it's beyond that, but it's also the built-up trauma of having gone through what she went through and then tried to curate her life in a way that doesn't allow for other people to come in. And because of that, that's going to leave her lonely and she can't handle that. Is her experience, I would hope, is not relatable. <laughs> uh, but her reaction, uh, yeah, that's where audiences are going to connect with the movie because and it's also the, the reaction is of very how realistic. She explains how David came into her life, like how David was groomed her, like groomed yeah. her and groomed her parents, charmed her parents. But she was like, I was 18 at the time, and my parents were like, Well, she's of age, we can't tell her what to do. But he had basically convinced her parents that this was the best thing for her and that he was going to make her into a better human being. But the better human being basically ended up being someone who was submissive to him who that he could destroy. Well, here's a question I saw someone asking about resurrection, and I think the answer is probably very complicated. Is Margaret a good, quote-unquote, good feminist? And I think the argument is no, she's not. Because feminism is like a collective ideology, right? She is and a she hyper individual. She is so, like, and that's why everyone in her life is being shut out and marginalized until ultimately, I mean, it'll be up to the audience if they choose to watch this. The ending is clearly not real. <laughs> like, yeah. The, it's the, the stylistic choices that we see in the final scene of the movie is, I don't know when and where this is happening. Yeah. But it un, it's unnerving because it, on the surface level, it's what a happy ending. But because of those stylistic choices that they're very much signify we're in a dream or we're in some sort of haze, like it's ultimately an, a down ending. It's an, an ending yeah. where the bad guy is defeated maybe but is he like because what if he is in her head what's to stop him from coming back in her mind and she certainly doesn't choose to deal with it in a healthy way there's never a mention of a therapist i don't think and so it's it's yeah like you're saying she's hyper individualist and she thinks that she can do this on her own and it's just not possible because for 20 years she hasn't been able to do it on her own and she gets to this state uh, would you recommend Resurrection? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, of course, it's very gore. And for people who have weird thing about kids, don't watch it. But it, it's, 
it's a compelling performance from everybody. I'd say if you're sensitive to like sexual assault themes in movies and like gaslighting and things like that, you're probably not going to enjoy it. If you're someone who understands those are bad things, but can also engage with art that features them, I think there's a lot here. And it's probably a movie that I don't imagine is going to get much recognition come awards time. Yeah. Maybe like the, you know, Independent Spirit Awards. Maybe the Oscars might throw it a screenplay nomination or something. Uh, but it, yeah, w- hands down, one of the best films of the year. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes on every episode for any relevant links uh, that direct you to our blog. Uh, That blog is popcult.blog, and you should be checking it out every week. We have new posts that go up Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and usually double posts on Saturdays and Sundays. And there's all sorts of movies and television and comic books reviewed there that we just don't talk about here on the show. And I'm sure you will find plenty to read there. Uh, Going on over at the blog right now, we're doing a series looking at the best of French director Jacques Demy. Just did a review of Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And coming up tomorrow, from when this episode drops, I'll be doing a review of The Young Girls of Roquefort. Uh, After we're done with Jacques Demy's films, we'll be doing a series of television to the big screen, where I'm going to look at a selection of films based on popular television shows, everything from uh, 1987's Dragnet with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, all the way up to the recent A-Team film with Liam Neeson, And we're going to be looking at them both as films, but also in our reviews, focusing on are they good at capturing the essence of the source material that they came from. And then in September, we'll be kicking off that month with a look at the films of Alexander Payne, starting with uh, Citizen Ruth and all the way through Election and About Schmidt, all those movies. Uh, If you would like to support both the blog and the podcast, you can do so at Patreon. That link is in our show notes. We have uh, lots of different levels to pick from, all the way from $3 a month to 20 And, of course, the higher levels you go, the more you get to do. I want to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt, who are both at our $10 writer's room level. Uh, because they're at the writer's room level, they get to pick a film every month for me to watch and review. And anyone on that level, if they want to add their own thoughts, they can. They just send them to me, and I'll incorporate them as part of the review. So make sure to check us out on Patreon if you'd just like to say thank you through a tip or want to give you know ongoing financial support to help build this into something bigger. Well, until our next episode, keep watching. Keep watching.